Thanks very much, Deb, and thanks for the uh, organising committee to uh, have me back again. Uh, it's a great treat to be back in Katoomba, and uh, I've been very uh, nicely treated with some uh, free accommodation here that's um, absolutely splendid uh, from uh, Warren and uh, Donna, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, so, yeah, so there are two policy instruments that are sort of out there that the Labor movement is sort of considering and should be considering. And one is the universal basic income that, that John's uh, outlined, and the other one is uh, the restoration of full employment <coughs> using a particular policy instrument that um, Professor Mitchell and a bunch of economists around the world have been tinkering with since the mid-90s that they call the job guarantee. And it's not just a job creation system, they actually consider it an economic stabilisation system. So it's not just about establishing full employment, because that's a relatively simple concept. Keynes, Keynesian economics cracked the case wide open in the 30s. Our, our government, uh, the Curtin government, uh, and, uh, implement, drew up the plans to implement it in the post-war era. And this country enjoyed uh, an aggregate demand management system for 30 years after the Second World War, where it became bipartisan policy to use public sector expenditure to supplement the private sector's demand for labour to maintain the unemployment rate at or below 2%, and they did that right up until 1974. And people of younger generations, when I talk about this, look at me in disbelief and say that can't even be vaguely possible, but just looking around this room, I know that there are people here who personally remember that time. Yes. And it was a great contrast to what, what they experienced and what their families experienced during the 30s, where in the early 30s we had a terrible depression and governments were being begged. The, there was a Labor government at the time, the Treasurer was... Uh, a very interesting character called Ted Theodore, who um, was well ahead of the pack in terms of understanding how you could reflate an economy in a depression. And he was proposing, he was putting up all this legislation, and all of it was being blocked in the Senate by the Conservatives and blocked by the um, business interests that were then controlling what passed as our central bank, which was the Commonwealth Bank in those days. And the Commonwealth Bank Board and the Senate blocked all these attempts to set up uh, a big uh, public works program uh, and to provide farmers with a, a um, stabilisation schemes that would have got Australia back the economy growing again. But the, the, the opponents of that criticised those ideas as saying that they'd be wildly inflationary, we'd get a hyperinflation like the Weimar Republic, blah, blah, blah. So, of course, when the Second World War comes along and the interests of those rich people who blocked all those schemes were suddenly just as threatened as everybody else because the Japanese were poised to invade us and they thought we'd better organise ourselves to put up a decent opposition. Uh, all of a sudden, they commissioned 40,000 workers to build um, airfields and ports and all sorts of infrastructure around the country that within the space of a year, during 1942, early 1943, within the space of a year, the country had achieved 1% unemployment. So then the public then were very quizzical. How come just eight years ago you were saying that this was an impossible thing to happen? You didn't have the money, or if you did it, it would cause a hyperinflation. You've done it, and it hasn't caused a hyperinflation. 
And so the government, the, the Labor government, took advantage of this, this situation. We're talking about Curtin and Chifley here. Both of them were staunch advocates of the right to work to begin with. They used this opportunity of having the controls over the wartime economy to implement full employment in the post-war period. And then when the 1949 election came along, Menzies, who had opposed all this during the war, was forced to swear blind that he would support these policies and for the next 23 years that the Liberals were in power, unemployment stayed under 2%. There were a few blips up to 3% that my professor Bill Mitchell's castigated me for not mentioning before. But even so, it was incredibly, an incredible economic performance. Okay, so in the mid-70s, um, and we weren't the only country that was doing this. This was going on in countries all around the world. Um, in um, uh, the um, uh, mid-70s, business interests organised themselves to engineer the abandonment of full employment. So you had this remarkable uh, speech by the chairman of BHP in April 1971, Sir Colin Syme, came out in full-page spreads in the, the Metropolitan newspapers and in the Financial Review, saying that this country needs more unemployment. We don't have enough unemployment in this country. And to read it today it just seems bizarre. But the issue for these, um, these people was that their profits were being squeezed, and that's because workers had too much bargaining power in an economy where they didn't fear the sack. So this is a very important issue to understand. In uh, 1349, England achieved full employment. They did it the hard way. Uh, the bubonic plague had swept down through Asia and wiped out a third of the adult population. And all of a sudden, all these lords of the manor were stuck with not enough workers to do their work for them, to keep them in the manner to which they'd become accustomed. And so they started poaching each other's workers. And of course, the workers worked out that they could, uh, Lord so-and-so's offering, could go to their own master and say that Lord so-and-so up the road's offering me £5 a year pay increase. What are you going to offer me to stay? And so the, the bargaining power of workers was suddenly enhanced to the extent that they got improvements in their conditions, higher rates of remuneration, and, you know, all the punishments that they would normally be subjected to all had to be toned down because these lords couldn't afford to lose their workers. Now, over time, the, the balance in the labour market was restored and we had unemployment again, but it was an interesting episode and we know about it because it was written about in a, a law was passed when the plague had cleared London and they could pass legislation again in 1351, um, the, uh, they passed this act called the Statute of Labourers and you can still look it up and read it today and in the preamble it explains to why this law was necessary and what, is, what it was was a maximum of rates award. That is, they listed all these occupations and said that no one was allowed to pay more in wages for these different occupations than they were paid four years before the plague struck. And uh, there were heavy penalties to any employer that paid more money. So it was about trying to force solidarity amongst the employer class. So we know that this is what happens and we know we, we saw the same thing happen in Australia in the post-war era where the, the position of working people was vastly strengthened by the fact that they had full employment. 
partly because the full employment was being created by things like large-scale public housing programs. So in the building of the housing, there was employment generated from that, but also they were increasing the stock of housing. And public housing became quite a normal thing for young families to make use of. You'd, you'd rent in, in cheap public housing for a few years, get your deposit together, and then buy your house in the private market. And it was through those processes, through both having security of employment and relative abundance of housing stock, that Australians had a very high level of home ownership and all the security that came from that. So today, we're considering something like the universal basic income. And it's, it's a contentious point in, in some circles because it's both advocated by staunch champions of the left, our John here, who I've known for many years, uh, but it's also advocated by the extreme right. Uh, Milton Friedman was an advocate of it, and uh, other extreme right people uh, today, um, like the American Enterprise Institute, advocate for a 13,000... This is last year, they're advocating for a $13,000 a year uh, guaranteed income. Uh, requiring though that 3,000 of that would have to be compulsorily paid for private health insurance. Um, but at the same time, there is absolutely no doubt, if we took the unemployment benefit, which is currently $267 a week, absolute starvation poverty wage, if we, if we took that and we removed the work test from it, and we removed the activity test from it, which is still the compulsion that people have to apply for jobs and jump through hoops and attend meetings, and if they don't do that, they get rendered destitute uh, by having their payments suspended. If we got rid of all of that, um, and also if we raised the level of that benefit to something, say, like the aged pension, which is currently around $437 a week for a single person... <coughs> If we establish that, it would do immense good for thousands of people in this country. Now, I worked in a country CES office where I had people who had every week had to go around and apply for jobs in 10 employers. So every few months, they started the cycle and went around to exactly the same people again. And everyone in this town knew each other. They, 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 they all knew each other. They knew who the person was. They knew he needed a job, but he still had to go there and get them to sign bits of paper and all this. It was a humiliating and degrading experience that something like a UBI set at a reasonable sort of level would alleviate all that misery. The other thing it would do, it would remove the justification for privatising the public <coughs> employment service. Most people don't understand that the reason why they had to get rid of the CES and institute a privatised system was because the CES staff weren't showing sufficient gusto in breaching people during the recession we had to have. The Australian National Audit Office did a study, of, of uh, did a report as to why the Departments of Social Security and Employment weren't achieving their <coughs> budget savings targets during the, in 1990. And the departments came back and said that we had been expecting to claw back a lot more money from the recipients of these benefits through breaching. But the staff aren't into it. They actually think that breaching harms their clients and they're not willing to do it. And I was working in the CS at this time and that was exactly what the attitude was. It wasn't 100%, but there was just a good number of CS staff who were totally opposed to cutting people off their dole during 
the, the, the worst depression since the, the worst recession since the 1930s depression. And so the um, Keating government, it was uh, Paul Keating and Peter Baldwin, commissioned a McKinsey consultant, a guy called Dr. Paul Toomey, who John Howard later went on to uh, have as the first uh, director of the Office of uh, the Information Economy, which sort of runs the domains and things for the internet. This guy, Dr. Paul Toomey, did this study that was called From Client to Customer, the Marketization of the Public Employment Service. And it was, it was in 1993, uh, it, during the time of the Keating government, that the blueprint for the job network and Centrelink was actually designed. But in the report, uh, Toomey said, you can't just shut down the CS one day and have these private mobs running the employment service. It has to be phased in. They have to have enough time to build up their offices and their systems, and the department is going to have to learn how to contract manage a process like this. So we have to have this sort of half-and-half half system for a period while these mobs are getting set up and the old CES chugs along doing the bread and butter work of you know, taking job vacancies and sending people off to work. And so um, uh, the Keating government implemented the white paper Working Nation, which was exactly that. So when John Howard came into power in 1996, he just dusted off Labor's blueprint and implemented the job network using Labor's existing legislation. They tried to get new legislation through the Senate and got blocked. Labor blocked it. So they said, all right, we'll implement the system using Labor's old legislation. It worked perfectly fine. So what we have here is a situation that to get the... And the reason they did that was they wanted to make the employment service staff, their, their lives, more precarious. So if they didn't, weren't prepared to cut someone off the dole, their jobs were at stake. And so the market works by giving, cut, cutting back on contracts to agencies that don't breach enough people and expanding the business empires of those that did. And through successive contracts, they've refined the job network into this very punitive and spiteful, vindictive system on the unemployed. Uh, and it's all driven by the fact that the staff themselves are in a precarious situation and their own economic insecurity... Um, creates the problem. Now, coming to the universal basic income and the fact that there are two, a left-wing version and a right-wing version, uh, Yanis Varoufakis uh, Van has, 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 has characterised the issue as a bit of a debate about um, our future, you know, because... Part of, the, uh, part of the story that's getting the run in the press at the moment is that robots are taking over and all the jobs are being disappeared. And so, and so um, you know, we don't need to be working. We'll just all live on this universal basic income and have this sort of somehow blissful existence. Now, Varoufakis uh, points out that this could go two different ways. And he, he, uses the, uh, he uses two science fiction models. He says this could go the Star Trek way, where this technology is all used for the human good and all these uh, average people have these great lives where they're highly technically skilled and trained and they're managing and controlling this technology and having this exciting experience of life. Or it could go the Matrix way, where the human beings become entirely enslaved to this new... Uh, uh, out, far out technology and really if you think about it 
the, the, profit, the problems that we might face in the future over the next 20 or 30 years, as the impacts of robots and automation of that do unfold, it's the way all this stuff unfolds and the way something like a universal basic income is, is applied is going to determine whether this is going to be an awful situation or a good situation. So the, I don't have a view of the universal basic income that it's necessarily all good or necessarily all bad. It could actually be very good depending on how it's done. So what is going to determine whether this works for your average working person or works for the interests of the powerful elite who currently have control over all this technology? And I say that the most critical thing to do is to empower working people in their society once again so that they do have an influence and control over this. And the way we do that is we, we rekindle the notion of full employment and so that working people in, in various departments and in organisations that are going to be making decisions about whether we're going to do it this way that's going to harm people or whether we're going to stand up, stand on our, 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 our dignity and refuse to carry out the order to do it the way that the powers that be might want us to do it. Those people who are going to be in those situations are going to have to have the confidence that they're not going to be brutally economically penalised if they make that decision. We have to take away from employers the power they currently wield by being the controllers of who has a dignified, decent standard of living and who does not. Because that is where their power has always been derived. And so what we do is we instigate a, a system where people have the right to work. Not a compulsion to work. They could have the universal basic income at the same time. And if people want to earn, say the current, the current age pension is $437 a week. The current federal minimum wage is $672 a week. Plus you get annual leave, sick leave, superannuation and workers' compensation. But what it would mean is that the fall from grace that somebody who stuck up and said, no, we're not going to do that, like the CES staff did back in, the in 1990, who refused to um, carry out the instructions to breach people. If people have, have a sense that their fall from grace will not be that far, that they'll still be able to meet the mortgage repayments or pay the rent, they might have a more uh, a lesser standard of living than the job that they might have been in. But if the fall isn't too far, I believe that people are going to be more confident about sticking up for decency and sticking up for their fellow human being. Because that's been the basic problem over the last 40 years. It's the working class has been actually divided and used as instruments to punish other members of the working class. And, you know, it's been done strategically. It's been done very cleverly. Um, you look at something like the universities, for instance. Our academics today are quite a quiet, coward group of people because their jobs have all been made precarious. Yes. <laughs> Two minutes. So, so I just think that I, 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 I don't know how the universal basic income would actually unfold. Depending on how it's done, it could have some issues with inflation, but they might be dealt with as well, depending on how it's sort of institutionalised. There'd be limits to how high the level of the UBI could be, because if it became too attractive to people in the workforce 
that they left their jobs and just lived on the UBI, it would mean that employers would have to offer more higher wages to try and draw them back into the workforce, and they'll pass those higher wages on as higher prices. So then the cost of living, the real purchasing power of the UBI would fall, so then there'd be arguments about whether it should be indexed or not. And there's a, a, a theorist called Zygmunt Bauman, who's uh, passed away last year, I think. But he had a concern about the UBI, that after five years, 10 years, 15 years, if you had a large cohort of the population who were just living on this universal income and not seen as engaged in contributing in a material sense to the rest of the society, it would be very easy for a demagogue to come along and demonise them as parasites, just as Hitler demonised certain groups as parasites back in the 30s. And Zygmunt Bauman had grave fears for where this could lead. So I think if we're going to go down this path, I don't see a job guarantee as something that stands in the way of a UBI. I think it's something that could make it safer for the future. And I, I would commend it to you if you don't know the details of it. Thanks very much.